1: Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Christy Thornton. Today, we're joined by Michelle Chase to discuss her fascinating new book, Revolution Within the Revolution, Women and Gender Politics in Cuba, 1952 to 1962, which was published in 2015 by the University of North Carolina Press. Michelle is an assistant professor of history at Bloomfield College and received her PhD at NYU in 2010, where I was lucky enough to get to know her. The book is a rich and nuanced history of women's participation in the movements of resistance that began in the immediate aftermath of Fulgencio Batista's seizure of power in a coup d'etat in 1952, and the resistance that culminated in the overthrow of Batista in the Cuban Revolution of 1959. Eschewing both official top-down narratives of women's liberation, as well as anti-communist accounts of women's co-optation, revolution within the revolution demonstrates that women's activism and leadership was critical at every stage of the revolutionary process. But the book is also a history of how notions of gender roles in Cuba at mid-century were both defined by and came to define the revolutionary moment, dialectically shaping the strategy of both revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries men and women alike. I was so privileged to sit down with Michelle recently to talk to her about the book. Michelle Chase, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. So first, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you came to the study of Cuba in particular, what drew you to the study of this revolution?
0: Well, actually began my graduate career as a Mexicanist. I had lived in Mexico City for a few years before going back to graduate school. And I was really passionate about the history of Mexico and wanted to know more. And I still am. I still love the history of Mexico. And when I began the PhD program, I was interested initially in doing a project about the Mexican left in the nineteen sixties, kind of starting with the impact of the Cuban Revolution on the Mexican student movement and the Mexican left and moving all the way up to, you know, the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about how support for Cuba fit into that. And I got at some point a little summer research grant that allowed me to spend the summer in, in Mexico doing some of this research. And I just started to get so interested in the way that people were talking about Cuba and, you know, the huge impact that it had on people at that time. Um, you know, people even wanted people from Mexico even wanted to go and defend Cuba during the Bay of Pigs and stuff like that. And at the same time, I started reading and, you know, trying to find out more about, you know, what was this thing called the Cuban Revolution? What was it about? And it was surprising to me how little serious historical study there was mm-hmm. of it. And then also I had I had taken a couple of trips to Cuba. Once, you know, a very touristy trip, I think that was in 2000. But while I was starting to do this research, I was able to travel to the island and visit a colleague of mine from uh, the NYU uh, History Department who was doing research there in the archives. And I just thought, you know, this is such an interesting place. Mm. It's such... It's such a different society, right? It's one of the most radical social experience of the 20th century and at the same time limited. And, and you know, you see its its faults and all its problems. And I thought it would just be such an interesting project to, um, to undertake for a bigger study.
1: Wow. That's really interesting, you know, I, it, because I'm a Mexicanist, but I came to Mexico only once I was in graduate school, a sort of very similar kind of trajectory. It's so interesting to see how these kinds of connections across the Americas can can cause these shifts in what we're actually studying. Did yeah. you face any, was it um, a big learning curve then once you started actually going to Cuba for study? was it very Was it difficult to kind of break into that world?
0: Oh, absolutely. It was hard at that time. There was, you know, I'm talking about probably 2005 was when I, when I did the bulk of my uh, my dissertation research. It's really hard now. Anyone who travels to Cuba now, you know, especially Havana, it's just overwhelmed by American uh, college students and mm. – um- And, you know, just lots of foreigners who are going there now because things have changed so much. But, you know, in 2005, there were very few foreign researchers there. You know, you had to get – it was just a whole series of kind of bureaucratic hoops you had to uh, go through, and to some extent still like that, to find an institution that would back you and give you a letter of support so that you could access different repositories and libraries. Um, It was – yeah, it was was hard at every level. And at the same time, the thing that was – so exciting about studying the Cuban Revolution that there had been so little history, you know, so few historical studies about it also made it really difficult because you kind of had to recreate everything from scratch, everything from primary sources or, you know, from the little that was written. So yeah, it was, it was a challenge, but it was, it was also very exciting.
1: Yeah. So I want to ask you in a few minutes about the sources that you encountered when you got there, but first I want (coughs) to let our listeners know a little bit, um, just kind of what the uh, what the arguments of this book are, why, why you felt like this book in particular was necessary. So this is your first book. Congratulations. Um, and this book, Revolution Within the Revolution, women, women and Gender Politics in Cuba, 1952 to 1962, is what you call a gendered history of the Cuban Revolution. And it really details the contributions of women to the whole revolutionary process. But you also say that it's it exists as something of a corrective to what you call the official narrative of the Cuban revolution. So what is that narrative and why do you feel that it needs to be, as you put it in the book, tempered?
0: In general, I'm referring to the top down narrative that reduces revolutionary actors to one group, mm-hmm. basically the rebel army and the small cohort of leaders that emerge from it. Um, it's a common narrative that I feel emanates from kind of the state-operated media, especially television. Um, you find it all over the place in political speeches from the 60s onward. It's implied in all kinds of visual depictions of the revolution from the early 1960s onward, especially posters and, um, um, and other kinds of ephemera like that. Um, and I think more specifically, when uh, it comes to the question of women and gender, it's a narrative about how women's liberation was essentially handed down from above mm. by an enlightened and visionary leadership that understood the need to incorporate and liberate women. Mm. Um, why do we need to rethink it? I'm, for a lot of reasons. I think politically, uh, it's a very problematic narrative that essentially positions the, positions the masses as obedient and grateful followers of the leadership. Um, and in that sense, it functions in a way to kind of co-opt criticism or dissent by basically saying, you know, look, you owe your liberation test, now stop complaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, historically, it's a problem because I think it obstructs a clear understanding of what actually took place, uh, basically by erasing all the many different kinds of actors and political groups that participated in the revolutionary conflict Um You know, going beyond women, right, to talk about, you know, the urban middle class or active Catholics, um, right, many other groups that you could mention. Hmm. And also, I'll say a little more specifically, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I think it's a narrative that you already see emerging, actually, at the very end of the insurrection against Batista, when the rebel army was trying to assert its leadership in the revolutionary struggle over all these competing groups, right? Exactly the ones that kind of get left out of history, um, even its its own urban wing, right? Its own urban counterpart. Um, and then that was a narrative that was consolidated in the first few years of the revolution and, um, you know, basically persists unchallenged in official discourse within the island uh, up to this day. So uh, it's a very persistent and entrenched narrative. Um, narrative as I said especially within the island um, so I think there's a lot of important reasons to rethink it and to challenge it
1: right and so one of the other things that you talk about in the introduction to this book is is sort of detailing how early feminist scholarship especially from non- Cuban researchers so Cubans I mean people coming from outside the island um, kind of looking at what the Cuban Revolution had meant for women that this kind of early stages of feminist scholarship on the Cuban Revolution largely bought into this official narrative. Um, and the narrative of women's liberation as a kind of effect of the socialist revolution. Um, but you also note that subsequent generations of scholars, particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, have begun to take a more critical view. So I wonder how you characterize this shift in our understanding and where you think your own work kind of fits within that.
0: Yeah, first, I want to say about that, that I think there has always been a body of um, much more critical and serious scholarship out there. Um, Ever since the 70s, but a lot of it was produced by political scientists, uh, sociologists, you know, thinking about people like Jorge Dominguez, Marty Felipe Um, I think in general, they weren't really focused on the question of, of women and gender. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, for a lot of feminist scholars, this seemed one area, you know, one of the accomplishments of the revolution that just seemed very attractive, especially with the, the family code, which was kind of a, a, a decree. I don't know exactly what, what the legal terminology, uh, would be for it that was published in 1975. Anyway, to a lot of women around the world, that seemed incredible because it seemed as though the state was actually trying to make the private sphere a more equitable equitable place by decreeing equal participation in things like trial care and housework, right? You know, in some ways that was that was a landmark and and it still is uh globally. But yeah, I think, you know, especially maybe already in the eighties, but especially uh, in the nineteen nineties, you start to see um much more critical work emerging around that question of gender and whether or not the revolution uh, really was able to uh, eliminate patriarchy, right? Coming mostly from anthropologists, uh, literary scholars, maybe other kinds of uh, cultural studies. Um, But I would also say that, you know, that revisionist trend, uh, which has been very influential in a way I think I'm, I'm trying to be part of it, it was never really uh, being produced by historians mm-hmm. per se. And, and I think that to this day, there has still not really been a consolidated group of historical studies, especially social histories on the revolution. Mm-hmm. And it's only now, I mean, li- literally right now that you're starting to see a new wave of historical scholarship on, on Cuba, which started a couple years ago with... Um, a landmark publication of Lillian Gergras called Visions of Power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, since then, there's been um, another book that came out by Anita Casavantes Bradford, which was a study of childhood in the first few years of the revolution. Um, and now my book, and there's going to be another book um, coming out this spring by Devin Spence Benson about race in the, the first few years of the revolution. Mm-hmm. So I see myself as, you know, being kind of one of that group of, of new social histories of the Cuban revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an exciting time, but it really is it really is right now. It's surprising that it hasn't happened sooner, but um this is that first wave of, of kind of social history is rethinking the, the official story and um, official discourse on the Cuban Revolution.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting that this is, this is only happening now, right? Obviously, in many other parts of Latin America, we had this surge of social history happening decades prior to uh, what's going on now in Cuban studies. And I wonder if one of the reasons for that is access to sources. So I wanted to ask you about your access to sources, because obviously... Among Latin Americanists, even among people who study Latin America and who deal with all of the problems of various Latin American archives, Cuban sources are known to be notoriously difficult sources to access and work in. So I wonder what kind of records you were able to work with and what kind of limitations you faced in researching and writing this book.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that Cuba was the Cuban Revolution was basically left out of that whole trend of social history because it was so difficult to travel to the island, especially mm-hmm. for uh Americans and um and because of the question of sources. Um so right off the bat, I'll just say that I I didn't have access to the bulk of uh, Cuban government sources from the period. I don't think anybody has because they haven't been declassified, right? So Cuba has a very organized and wonderful archive when it comes to the colonial period. But even for the Republican period, and then especially once you get to the 1950s, um, it gets more and more difficult to access government produced sources. And I'll tell you that when I first started my project, you know, when I was a PhD student, a lot of people warned me that the project just wasn't feasible. You know, not my advisors who were always very supportive, but, you know, other really knowledgeable people and uh, friends of mine who are doing PhDs and, and uh, you know, in other countries in Latin America. So that was always a really big concern from the very beginning for me. Um, and, you know, any kind of study, any kind of historical study on Cuba takes a lot of creativity and patience. Mm. But I found other sources, either kind of new uh, sources or, or just underutilized sources that, um, that ended up being extremely useful to me. So for the period of 1952 through 1959, 1960 even, I mostly used uh, declassified State Department documents, mm-hmm. um, different types of periodicals, both like mainstream newspapers within Cuba and also the clandestine press, you know, different forms of clandestine ephemera. And the State Department documents from that period were surprisingly interesting. You know, they were just very available. A lot of it was on microfilm. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, let me just take a look at these and see what they say without having huge expectations. Um, But they're a lot more interesting than you think. Uh, You have to read between the lines a little bit and, um, you know, piece things together a little bit. But they end up giving a lot of extraordinary detail Mm -hmm. of what was going on in Cuba um, during the struggle against Batista, especially how daily life in the cities was being disrupted by – by growing, you know, the growing repression of security forces and uh, growing anti-Batista political uh, activism. And there was some stuff that was really great that I just couldn't even use because it was kind of outside the frame of my own project. But towards the very end, they'd be receiving letters from, you know, let's say people who owned, you know, a, a coffee finca in the area near where the rebels, you know, were stationed. And, you know, these, these really interesting um, descriptions of people interacting with the rebels and, you know, how that territory was being transformed, right? So um, a lot of interesting correspondence coming out of uh, the Havana embassy and also the consulate that was in Santiago.
1: Mm-hmm. And so how did you think about balancing, obviously, you know, in the in the later period, we would think sort of about ideological kind of, um, biases in these documents right. from the State right. Department in this in this early period. How did you think about balancing the kind of Cuban voices that you were finding and these U.S. sources?
0: Well, one thing I'll say is that you'd be surprised how sympathetic a lot of the State Department officials mm-hmm. were were towards um, the revolutionary movement in the 1960s. There, there were different camps within uh, the State Department, but you know some of them were were openly sympathetic with mm-hmm. um, the anti Batista movement and. Um, how did I balance it? I mean, I, I used other sources, oral histories. I used all throughout the project. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll say more about that in a second. Um, a lot of the clandestine press um, that was being published within Cuba and the Cuban press, right? So just kind of reading all of those things together and mm-hmm. trying to have a critical eye, I, I think, was really helpful. But I will also say that the State Department documents, you know, take a radical turn and become very much less useful starting about 1960, right? Um, At the end of 1960, right, of course, the embassy shut down. And then after that, they established a kind of makeshift embassy in Miami, Mm -hmm. kind of an embassy in in exile, so to speak. And, you know, then they were fielding a lot of rumor and hearsay and, you know, they had a much less um, grounded sense of what was going on, Mm -hmm. right? So it's really, they become a lot less useful after that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, I was saying a moment ago, the clandestine periodicals. I was surprised to find that some of the uh, repositories in Cuba actually have uh, very complete collections of all of these little mini kind of, you know, hand run, um, Clandestine periodicals that were being put out by different uh, revolutionary groups, and those were very surprising. They were wonderful to read. Um, They gave you just a really interesting sense of kind of the revolutionary rank and file, getting you way beyond the published speeches of the leadership. You know, a lot of descriptions of kind of daily life and the urban struggle, especially. Um, A lot of emotion, a lot of descriptions Mm -hmm. of you know, uh, you know, comrades in the struggle being killed or tortured and so on, and that that ended up being very useful to me. And then uh, later, for the period of kind of 1960 through 1962, I also used the Exile Press, which is um, held in a great repository in Miami. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, at that time, still very detailed, still in pretty good touch with the island. Um, It became a little bit less useful after 1962.
1: Mm -hmm. And can you talk about the oral histories that you mentioned?
0: Yeah, uh, the oral histories, I hadn't gone into this project thinking about doing oral histories, um, but it kind of came up. Um, it was suggested to me by some of the people that I met in Cuba, some of the other researchers. And some um, some people that I met there put me in touch with people that they knew who had taken part, uh, especially in, I started out doing a lot of oral histories with one all-women's uh, anti-Batista group that had actually published some of their own kind of memoirs and documents, which was, which is unusual. It was unusual at that time to see, um, a group other than, you know, the revolutionary leadership who, um, who was able to kind of publish their own, their own description of what had happened. So I started out by contacting a lot of those women. They were still in touch with Mm -hmm. each other. Many of them, the ones that were still in Cuba and were still alive. And that was great. That just opened up a whole other window for me onto what had happened. Um, and so, you know, I, I contacted people. I told them what I was doing. I interviewed them in their houses usually. Um, it was hard sometimes in Cuba to find a good place to meet with people, a place mm-hmm. that was quiet. Um, I tried to interview them more than once if I could because sometimes they'd be a little bit tense the first time or, you know, a foreign researcher. What is she about? But by and large, people actually were really uh, open to speaking with me and they wanted to share their experiences. And then later I ended up interviewing uh, many people in, in Miami and Washington and New Jersey, you know, people in the diaspora as well. mm mm-hmm.
1: It's really interesting. I think um, one of the things that's also striking about this book, and maybe um, for Cubanists, this is completely logical, but um, people who are outsiders will be really struck by the periodization of this book, right? So you're, um, you cover what you call the revolutionary moment of the decade between 1952 and 1962. So I wondered if you could talk to why you chose to cover this moment, and not, for example, the years of kind of socialist consolidation after 1962.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, even now with the scholarship that's coming out, a lot of it still adheres to kind of the the standard periodization of 1959 to 1962 or kind of 1959, maybe up to 1970. Um, I thought it was exciting to think about just that whole period, that whole kind of tumultuous period when the shape of the revolution was still so up in the air. Uh, The revolution could still have gone in so many different directions and where you really see a lot of different actors, a lot of different political ideas in circulation. You know after 1962, I think you have a much more solidified system in which um, grassroots participation was much more orchestrated from above, much more regulated you know channeled through uh, these mass organizations that were set up um, so I thought it would be, it would be interesting to look at kind of the origins of this revolutionary mo- uh, movement and kind of how it emerged from my from my particular study, kind of how the question of, um, of women and women 's incorporation and women 's liberation kind of first, first evolved, where it came from and stuff. And by looking at that whole period from 1952 to 1962, you see certain continuities. So, you know, one of the things I try to show is that women were extremely active in that period of 1952 through 1959 or mm-hmm. 1960, right? And that would be something that you would lose if you just started the story in 1959. Um, so you see certain um, um, certain continuities throughout that period and also certain changes, which I also try to chase. And I think just... More generally, you know, in, in kind of this official story, this official discourse that I'm trying to challenge, there's a real kind of uh, celebration about that period from 1960 onward when the mass organizations were formed, right, like the Federation for Cuban Women or the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution, um, a lot of celebratory uh, um, uh, talk about the literacy campaign of 1961 and the mass participation in that. And I think that there's this kind of assumption um, – whether stated directly or just indirectly, that that was when mass participation really surged, especially women's participation, Mm -hmm. right? So most studies of women's participation in the revolution start with that formation of the uh, Federation of Cuban Women in in mid nineteen sixty. And so, in this book, I try to rethink the dynamics of that period a little bit, and I, I try to talk about, you know, the anti-Batista resistance in the cities as as a burgeoning mass movement. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you think about it that way, and then you see this, you know, this spike, the surge of popular participation taking place between 1959 and 1960, it gives you kind of a different lens on that whole period, in which you see that that mid-1960 um, formation of the mass organizations and um, um, kind of the different dynamics that took place, it was actually the end of one kind of popular mobilization, right? The end of a certain kind of grassroots and politically plural eff- effervescence that you see at that, in that revolutionary moment. So I mm-hmm. thought it'd be important to kind of recover that and to rethink what happened afterwards as, um, you know, as, as a much different dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. One that in a way, in a, in a way is a little bit less exciting to me.
1: So um you mentioned that much of this was happening in cities in this early period. And so another important feature in your analysis, one of the arguments that you make is to focus on the particularities of urban resistance, whereas so much scholarship on revolutionary processes in Latin America in general looks to rural agrarian masses as actors. And obviously, in the case of Cuba, we have, you know, the, the guerrillas in the rural areas coming from the Sierra Maestra. And so I wonder um, what you think this focus on the urban does to reveal gender dynamics that are otherwise overlooked.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was really exciting about uh, about this project from the perspective of women and women and gender is that there's just no way you can study uh, the role of women in these revolutionary processes without getting way beyond the Siena Maestra and the rebel mm-hmm. army, right? It's important to recognize that there were some women uh, who did participate in in the rebel army. Um, there was an all-women's uh, uh, battalion named the Mariana Grajales uh, Brigade. Um, as everybody knows, there was kind of a small cohort of um, women strategists, right? They were basically political strategists who um, collaborated very closely with the inner circle of leadership there in the rebel army. Some of those women later were talked about as you know, predominantly the wives of, uh, of the revolutionary leadership, but that's that's not the case. They were important strategists in their own. Right, but what I try to show in this book is that in the urban centers. Women's participation was the norm and not the exception. So I think that that's very important to understand, right? When you look at all this activity, first against Batista and uh, in the period of 1952 to 1959, and the different forms of activism, both pro-revolutionary and anti-revolutionary, right? And in that period between 1959 to 1962, you know, women were prevalent in all of these different periods and all of these different layers to political, political activism that you find, um, and by following the threads of this participation, you know, the kinds of protests that they had in the cities, the languages that they used, I mean, you know, the discourse that they used, uh, the role that women played in these different anti-Batista groups, both above ground and ever- underground, it opens just an entirely new window under this whole period that, that for me was very exciting. Right. Um, so, just in terms of you know some of the dynamics that the book is able to uncover by by asking these questions and using using this focus, one of the things that uh, I was interested in was the use of maternalist language, mm-hmm. which you see you see all throughout that period, but I think it, it especially surges in 1957 um, and onward. And so, in part of the book, I I try to detail a series of um, women's protests, kind of public marches that uh, took place in that period when women protested as the mothers or sometimes the spouses or sisters of men who had been killed in in the revolutionary struggle. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who studies Latin America, you know, it's really striking. You see these photos of these, you know, silent marches, women, a lot of them were uh, dressed in black, uh, sometimes holding rosaries, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, using, um, you know, the... uh, uh, clothes and other things that would indicate mourning and it reminds you very much of things that you see later in latin america right during the dictatorships Mm -hmm. of the southern cone most of us who study latin america read about the mothers of the plaza de mayo for example you know but this was something that preceded those other um those other forms of protest by about 20 years right Mm -hmm. you're talking about the mid and late 1950s um so i have a whole section where i talk about that about why women um, decided to protest primarily as mothers rather than just as mm-hmm. aggrieved citizens or Cubans, right? right?
1: So uh, um, I do want to get I want to get into that question in a minute, but I want to draw our listeners back sort of to the very beginning of your period, the period between 1952 and say 1955, which you say 1955 is kind of traditionally thought of as a as a kind of kicking off moment as, as some of this anti Batista opposition, right? But you do you, you trace all of this. Uh, activism between 1952 and 1955 and one of the places that you're able to find this um, the kind of coalescence of these movements are in spaces that were as you say generally gendered as feminine spaces so theaters department stores churches private homes so can you describe for us in the in these very early days after Batista takes power um, again what the kind of um, acts of resistance are that you're finding in these spaces that have been gendered feminine in this way
0: Yeah, I think there's always been a recognition that there was some uh, early protest, right, starting right in 1952 when Batista took power through a coup. But there's been a kind of assumption in the literature that those were mostly restricted to the, you know, the university ambit, the University of Havana, right, students and stuff. And um, this was some of the stuff that came out by using the State Department documents and the clandestine um, publications from the period. It was really interesting to me. To see that actually there were protests that went beyond, uh, far beyond the university ambit, um, and that they they did all kinds of things which may now seem surprising to us, right? They're just not at all the types of protest actions that we associate in our minds with the Cuban Revolution, right? So some of the things that people would do... Um, they would try to purposefully disrupt daily life and especially kind of uh, patterns of consumption, right? So they would do um, these disruptive activities in department stores, uh, movie theaters. Um, they would um, hold what they would call like a lightning meeting. A group of activists would really quickly assemble in some space like this, start shouting, start throwing flyers, and then just, you know, just as quickly disappear, Um uh, there were a lot of very performative protests also, I talk about this, that uh, tried to kind of mimic a funeral. Activists would kind of hold up a, a casket with maybe something like the Constitution inside it. Um, maybe some activists would stand on street corners and pass out like black ribbons to symbolize mourning on the anniversary of the coup. Uh, women were prevalent in all of these uh, these mm-hmm. different protests. I found it really interesting. And then some of my favorite uh, descriptions of these early protests describe things that um, that that really kind of um, transcended that division between the public and, and the private sphere. So things that might use the family home, for example, as the site of resistance, um, they might say things like, uh, you know, stay home for the whole day, turn your lights out, you know, show that the country is in mourning, you know, lower your blinds. Um, other things that might be more similar to a boycott, like, you know, don't, don't pay your taxes, you know, uh, don't buy newspapers. that are associated with Batista. Um don't, you know don't do any kind of uh, economic transaction for an entire day to show your displeasure um, all kinds of things that, that were just really surprising some of them kind of in a way seemed to be similar to things we're more familiar with from the civil rights protests of the mm. of the period um, right like boycotts and, and other kinds of protests like this and in department stores and other places um, and there was one thing that really struck me actually when I was doing my research it, also I, I should point out that a lot of these um, a lot of these different forms of protest persisted over the whole period of 1952 until uh, the revolution came to power in 1959. But there was one photo that really struck me when I was doing my research. It was a photo from 1957, um, from the one-month anniversary, I think it was, of the killing of a famous um, student leader named José Antonio Echeverría. It was just a mainstream newspaper, a Cuban mainstream newspaper, and it was just a photo with a caption. But it showed a group of young women uh, kneeling and praying on the spot where he had been killed. And that was just so striking to me. That was just one of those points in the research where I thought, you know, there's so much going on here that I can only scratch the surface of, right? Like all these different expressions, these emotional expressions of uh, opprobrium and, you know, beyond the big protests, there were just these very small kind of, you know, actions that that citizens would take and, and women were very prevalent in them. So those are some of the things that I try to sketch out and um, in the early part of the book, mostly about that period from 1952 to 1955. And, mm-hmm. and again, to kind of suggest that there was kind of a civic mass movement that was building, and you see the outlines of it already in this period, right? And, but as you said, things changed, uh, in 1955, especially with the rise of, um, of the armed groups and, and the embrace of political violence.
1: Right. So, so that's sort of the next thing that you turn to the, to in the book as the movement against Bautista really becomes a kind of armed insurrection, you write that it begins to, distra- it begins to draw on kind of distinctly gendered ideas about revolution. And as you write there emerged what you call a, a gendered division of labor within the revolution. So why did this happen and what did it look like?
0: I think that by 1955, kind of the repression that was being exercised by security forces, right, both in the cities and, and elsewhere, right, was um, was becoming serious enough that some of the anti-Batista activists um, began to much more seriously take on the question of, of um, armed resistance to Batista. Now, that had always existed as an option, right? It existed ever since uh, the Moncada attack led by Fidel Castro, right? That famous that famous attack that he had launched. And there were other people with um, similar plans that were foiled. Um, but it became kind of a, a, a more widely accepted option by uh, 1955, um, and it was in this period that you know both the twenty sixth of July movement starts to plan uh, returning to the island and um, beginning a um, you know a, a mass uh, a, both a military movement in the uh, in the mountains and also to um, have a an armed uh, military opposition of the cities and then there were also other groups like the revolutionary directorate that was mostly. Uh, based in Havana and around Havana University that also started to take up arms and to begin things like much more violent protests that actually were um, intending to provoke security forces to uh, become more repressive and thus drive more people into the opposition and, and kind of just um, uh, push the whole country towards some kind of revolutionary conflict and, and eventually uh, resolution. So one of the things that I was, that I found very interesting in both, um, I saw it both in clandestine ephemera and um, oral histories that I did. And also in some memoirs, right? Some people that participated in in these events have much later on in in life, they published their memoirs is that you start to see that men are being um, appealed to and called upon to take up arms and join the urban struggle, both in the cities and then eventually um, in the Sierra Maestra. Whereas women are, are now being pushed towards more kind of support roles, um, things like, um, me, working as messengers, working on things like provisions, maybe the transport of arms. Um, and you know, I think that that reflected the predominant uh, gender norms of the time, that it was considered acceptable for men to wage these forms of violence, but not for women. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's also why I talk about in that period, it seems so interesting that you see this surge of these public protests mostly that are mostly... Um, that mostly women are taking part in both these kind of maternalist protests and also things like, um, participation in funerals, right? Funerals mm-hmm. became very political events, mass funerals, uh, from, for the late 1950s, right? Where again, it'd be mostly women speaking and attending and, uh, they became, um, um, almost kind of like rallies of the rallies of their own. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that starting around 1955, you start to see this gender division of labor that takes place, whereas beforehand, you had seen, you know, a kind of much more, um, a much more equitable participation, I would say, in these public protests and these other forms of, of civic opposition that I tried to talk about earlier.
1: Right. And so this is also the period when you ha- when you talk about the emergence of the barbudo, right, the, the yeah, kind right. Of bearded <laughs> revolutionary figure. And so I think that that's one of the really interesting things and one of the really incredible contributions of this book is in using a gender analysis. You're looking at how the, these sort of gender roles are be, being created, not just for women, but for men. And so I wonder if you can speak about what you found about the fi- this figure of the barbudo and the sort of masculine um, uh, expectations for the revolutionary movement.
0: Right. Um yeah that, that was um that was a lot of fun looking into because i I was looking at a lot of the um clandestine ephemera from the time and and you start to see this image taking shape you know by about 1957, the end of 1957, but especially 1958, you see it on um, the clandestine publications, you see it on the bonds that began to circulate, you know, you see it in all these kind of um, different uh, visual, kind of vernacular forms of visual culture emerging in the period, and and especially, you know, also in in discourse and descriptions. Um, And you see, you know, this kind of valorization of a certain kind of hyper-masculinity right, that became associated with a certain kind of revolutionary figure and ultimately the, you know, revolutionary actor was mm-hmm. uh, understood to, to embody these characteristics, right, and, and a lot of it we're familiar with, but I think I kind of tried to tease it out a little bit more in the book, but just kind of this emphasis on certain traits uh, that, these, that these men were uh, said to embody, so, you know, bravery, uh, you know, f- physical activity, right, um, strength, um, the willingness to use violence, right? And you see conversations between men that took place in, in this period where men and, you know, again, in these kind of clandestine publications or letters would sort of go to each other and say kind of, you know, you're a coward or, you know, or even, you know, um, you're a faggot, right? You would even mm-hmm. see that kind of language, right? Men uh, speaking to other men who were not supporting the violent violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the violent overthrow of Batista, right, and kind of goading each other to action. Or you even see it in memoirs, right? Some of the men um, who published their memoirs later would say things like, you know, I I had to participate, you know, I had to become, you know, this kind of man, otherwise I'd be a coward and, you know, I'd be disdained by my compañeros and stuff like that, right? So that was one of the things that was really interesting to me, talking about this kind of... um, masculine figure that was um that was created there in the rebel army and disseminate in the sierra maestra and and disseminated through all these different forms of clandestine Mm -hmm. propaganda but i also try to talk a little bit about the slightly different forms of masculinity that you see emerging among the revolutionary movements in the urban centers right and um It's interesting just to think about the different forms that the struggle was uh, taking and these different kinds of locales and what that would mean. So, you know, there was some overlap in terms of, you know, the importance of bravery and and manhood. But, um, you know, there was also in these, in the urban underground, right, where open combat was not as common, right? There was less emphasis, I think, on military strength and risk-taking and also, you know, correspondingly a little bit more emphasis on things like discretion, Skill its strategy and planning, ah, the importance of being cool-headed during a conflict rather than being, you know, hot-tempered and stuff like that. And the other thing you see very strongly coming out um, when you talk about masculinity and the urban underground is just that prevalence of, of death or. As they would have referred to it as, as of martyrdom, right? This was like this this looming reality for the men of the urban underground, in an, in a way that it wasn't exactly for the rebel army. I mean, people might be killed in combat, but it was a very different uh, kind of death to be, um, you know, tortured and then killed um, during detention, right? Um, detained and and shot while unarmed on the street by police, right? These were the forms of death that. Um, men, I think, in the urban underground really struggled with because they didn't conform to kind of these typical uh, masculine notions of what a good death would be, dying in combat with a weapon in your hand, right? And and so I talk about kind of how these funerals, which I said a moment ago, became, you know, these important sites of protest and of revolutionary affirmation, you know they also became a way of um turning what could seem like you know the emasculation of these um these martyred men into you know this kind of glorified narrative about uh, the martyr and uh the certain kinds of masculinity that 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 they embodied right wow. so so it's it's also just interesting to think about the different ways masculinity expressed itself in these different uh in these different locales
1: yeah it's it's such an interesting analysis, and so one of the corollaries to this is something that you mentioned earlier. In this gendered division of kind of revolutionary labor is this shift where women in the struggle begin to draw on what you call their moral authority as mothers and this kind of maternalist discourse that you mentioned. So I wonder how you see women mobilizing this maternalist discourse and, and what results this has.
0: Yeah. So I was saying a moment ago, I'll say a little bit more about it, you know, especially by about 1957, you, you know, you see this surge in these protests, especially in Santiago, but also smaller protests in Havana, um, where women uh, very explicitly posited themselves as the grieving Relatives, uh, mothers, wives, sisters of men who had been killed. But you know, I should also say, just to clarify, that unlike other uh, examples we might be familiar with, especially the mothers of the Plaza de the Mayo, the majority of those women protesting were not the literal relatives of these mm-hmm. men, or not the literal mothers. Those women were present, and they formed a kind of honor group within uh, the mm-hmm. protesters. But most, for most women, this was a, a you know a metaphoric relationship, a symbolic mm-hmm. relationship, right? Um, And, you know, they they would dress in such a way as to indicate that they were mourning, you know, dressing in black, uh, using a rosary, right? And so I try to argue that these protests had a very important – played a very important political function during the struggle against Batista, essentially discrediting him by showing, um, um, you know, the intense – um, violence that was being perpetrated by security forces against these young men, usually young men, although some women were also killed. Um, and that that was a very appealing and kind of quasi-universal language, the language of the family and the grieving mother mm-hmm. that I argue basically helped um, transform the struggle against Batista into a moral struggle, into a, a moral problem. And and thus helping to galvanize, you know, I think eventually a majority of the Cuban population against Batista using this kind of language. You know, I think it's also fair to point out that women protesters, uh, their contemporaries, were doing very similar things against Trujillo in the Dominican Republic and uh, Perez Rojas in Venezuela, right? So this was not a dynamic that was unique to Cuba. It was something that you see more broadly uh, in the period. And I think in, in those other countries as well, you know, women contributed to, you know, the political implosion that eventually, um, you know, Brought down Batista, forced his reign to crumble, right? A political tsunami that brought him down, as a friend of mine puts it. Hmm. So um, after
1: 1959, after the triumph of the revolution, um, some of this language, you, you sort of trace a shift, a change, and there emerged some conflict between women activists from, for example, the 26th of July movement and those who are in the Communist Party. So I wonder if you can describe this conflict and tell us how it was expressed in, in terms of the kind of gender roles in the revolution.
0: Yeah, first I'll say that I think that that just kind of the discourse of maternalism, right? And one of the things I try to sketch out in in the book is that it was a very malleable discourse, right? So even during Batista uh, and the struggle against Batista... Uh, it, it could take on sort of conservative tones, and it had a certain, you know, resonance in terms of women of the middle class, even if it was not always explicitly posited that way. And I think after 1959, you see that language of the aggrieved mother, uh, maternalist protest, really being taken up more by the uh, the opposition, right? The mm, right. the anti revolutionary or counter the anti Castro movement, right? And um, and that's one of the interesting. Uh, Kind of transitions that you see by looking at that whole period, right, of 1952 to 1962, how that language persisted but it was um, used more and more by women on the opposition, right? Um, and then, in terms of the conflict between women activists who had come out of the 26th of July movement and uh, the women activists who were coming from the Communist Party, well. You may know, and but maybe some listeners don't that the Communist Party in Cuba did not support um the twenty sixth of July movement or these other um armed movements against Batista mm-hmm. until the very end of the struggle right it was It was just not their policy. their line was that we oppose Batista, but we want this to be an urban struggle that focuses on mobilizing the workers and you know creates a kind of um Sort of like a popular front against Batista, that was the kind of thing that they had in mind. Well, at least the Communist Party was divided. That was at least what the leadership said. And some younger members of the Communist Party who did want to support um, a, a more revolutionary option, a more you know the armed the armed line against Batista. Some of them were distanced from the party because of that. Mm. Uh, but in general, in general terms, the uh, the Communist Party didn't support um, the struggle against Batista until very late, until mid or mid nineteen fifty eight. So one of the things I show is that. The Communist Party of the 1950s actually had a surprisingly progressive um, platform around women's rights, and they had uh, many women activists uh, often affiliated with a sort of, um, uh, I guess, a sort of spinoff group. It's it's a little bit unclear whether it was actually controlled by the party or just had a lot of overlap uh, with the party called the Democratic Federation of Cuban Women. And so one of the things I show in this... um, post-1959 period is the way these women who had been mobilized by the 26th of July movement or by other anti-Batista, um, insurrectionary groups, the way these women continued to mobilize and pressed the leadership to, um, allow them to kind of form these, um, these all women's groups and to mobilize other women and, um, and basically to, to, to keep up the momentum that they had, um. That they felt coming out of this this experience of the insurrection, right? But for women affiliated with the old left, right, with the the pre-revolutionary Communist Party, this period was also a window of opportunity for them, right? So they also began to mobilize, drawing on their you know their pre-existing networks, right? Um, and so. This period is really interesting, this period between 1959 and 1960, when you see all these different kind of competing or just parallel women's groups popping up, these pro-revolutionary women's groups popping up. And they weren't always exclusively, you know, women from the 26th of July movement or women from the pre-revolutionary communist parties. Sometimes you would see a mixture, right? I mean, although there was often some continuity uh, between um, kind of the the political trajectories or the political histories of where these women were coming from and the groups that they joined post-1959, And so, you know, they were doing some similar things, reaching out to women, uh, mobilizing other women um, to support different revolutionary initiatives, um, holding – things like conferences to try and drum up kind of a platform of uh, women's demands in this very early revolutionary period. So I try to show that actually those demands and uh, just kind of this whole issue of women's incorporation, women's liberation, um, women's demands. This was something that actually emerged out of this, out of these kind of more grassroots initiatives in this Mm -hmm. period, 1959, 1960. And then actually if you look at the speeches being made by the leadership, the national leadership, you hardly see any reference to, um, to women or to their um, to their particular grievances in this period at all. So I really think it was something that was being pushed from below. But, you know, a lot of the struggle between the women of the 26th of July movement and the women of the, the former Communist Party um, sometimes just had to do with the fact that um, the women who had belonged in these insurrectionary groups felt a sort of ownership of the revolutionary movement, right? Because they were the ones who had participated and suffered, and their comrades had died, and they had sacrificed everything. And they saw all these women from the Communist Party as these kind of carpetbaggers or these kind of upstarts who were trying to now co-opt a revolution they hadn't made. I think a lot of the a lot of the um, conflict came over that, rather than these larger ideological issues of kind of capitalism versus socialism. I think that, that was that was not so much. Um, what explains a lot of the conflict that took place between these women at the time, conflict, conflict and competition. Right? right. Um, and so it was expressed just in the fact that there were, um, these different and competing groups, right. Each, um, kind of women from the old left and women from the new left, both formed, um, and pressed for women's militias. That was kind of a big demand of these women's groups in these periods to allow women to uh, belong to the popular militias that were then, that were then forming, uh, in, in some ways kind of organically in this period. Um, And, you know, this conflict was eventually just, you know, repressed or subsumed when the government formed the Federation of Cuban Women in in mid-1960. And, you know, as I said, a lot of histories start right there. A lot of of histories of uh, women's participation in the revolution start in mid-1960. And I try to show this whole backstory, right, of all these other... Um, more grassroots uh, initiatives that, that women activists themselves formed between 1959 and 1960 and how that was shut down mm-hmm. um, by the imposition of a single unified revolutionary mass organization for women by mid-1960.
1: Mm, interesting. So um, one of the other things that happens after the revolution um, is there um, comes to be this appeal made to women. um their, The way that the government appeals to them very much has to do with the sort of disproportionate ways in which women are experiencing some of the problems uh, post-revolution. So crises of consumption, things like food shortages, these do have disproportionate effects on women who then make their dissatisfaction known. So I wonder how the revolutionary government responded to these women when they um, made clear what their problems were, particularly as women in the post-revolutionary period
0: yeah that was one of the most um that was one of the most enjoyable chapters for me writing about these um the food shortages and other problems of consumption that took place in the in the early nineteen sixties especially between uh, nineteen sixty 1960 and nineteen sixty two and it was one of those things where you really see clearly the need for studies of the urban context where um where shortages were were paramount um and also for taking you know a gender lens to these issues because women bore the brunt of these shortages as you know the traditionally accepted um uh um, reproducers of, of, of the domestic sphere, right? So, in that role, women um, they protested about the fact that there were um, first rising prices, food prices, and then shortages—not just of food, but other um, necessary things like, say, soap or um, I don't know, let's say, toilet paper or um, medicine, stuff like that. Um, um, so, the revolutionary government's response. Well, you know, there were there were some organized protests of, of women in this period. And then there was just a lot of, I think, spontaneous or, or semi-spontaneous uh, protests and conflict that took place and the lines that were forming, beginning to form in this period outside of food stores. And I argue in this book that actually the revolutionary leadership was very slow to respond, and I think that's very revealing, right? When we see how um, how quickly and how decisively they would respond to things like aggression from the United States, um, how quickly they were willing to expropriate or nationalize um, businesses owned, you know, by the by the United, uh, by um, American citizens, and then eventually even by by Cuban citizens. Right. In contrast, you see that they move very slowly to address. You know these much more everyday kind of issues of of um hardship and scarcity in the urban context, despite the fact that there were so many uh protests and um and petitions and problems going on um like i said especially especially uh especially expressed by women in this period, so I think it tells us a lot about kind of what they prioritized or or what they saw as um you know, as, as urgent in this period. And, but then eventually they did address it, right? They would address it first in speeches. Um, they first tried to kind of exhort people to not consume more than what was necessary uh, to kind of restrain themselves as consumers. They asked um, shopkeepers um, um, uh, not to, you know, not to hoard, not to raise prices. Eventually they also published a whole series of, um, of decrees that um, stipulated um, price ceilings on certain food items or uh, profit, you know, profit margins that couldn't be exceeded by shopkeepers. Um, but then finally, when things really were getting um, kind of out of control and really there was a uh, very serious scarcity, then finally they also implemented uh, first a limited system of rationing and then eventually a more generalized ration uh, system, which persists up to this day, right? Mm-hmm. The ration book, the Cubans call the Libreta.
1: And so um, this was really a site at which um, – Because of these questions about consumption and the appeal to women from the government as consumers rather than, say, you know, sort of typical proletarian laborers, there wasn't like an attempt by this by the state to try and incorporate women as new sort of proletarian laborers, but rather this appeal to them as consumers. And so one of the things that I think that you show is the way that this sort of reinscribes some of those traditional gender roles, right, that later we might associate um, the Cuban state as as going after.
0: Right. Yeah. One of the things that I try to do in this book, I think that there's a lot of, in the existing literature, there's a lot of assumptions about uh, the Cuban leadership, their, them being predominantly interested in pushing women into so-called productive labor, whether paid or unpaid, or pushing women into productive labor. In other words, um, getting them away from reproductive labor one way or another, getting them out of the home and forcing them to uh, to produce Um And I try to show that in this period, I don't think that 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 was paramount. I think that emerged later in the 1960s, but in this period they often uh, appealed to women mostly as consumers, right? Especially during this whole period of crisis um, in the urban centers between 1960 and 1962, when shortages really were severe. Um, And So you see a lot of kind of language and um, ads being placed by the revolutionary government of saying to women, you know, you as a consumer, your role is to do this or, you know, your role in the revolution is to do that, right? Either in the very beginning by consuming more, right, by consuming the products being produced by Cuba, when they still hoped to industrialize, right, telling women to buy local, buy national, mm-hmm. and then later, as I said, to to avoid purchasing more than what was needed, right, to buy the bare minimum, not to hoard, right. These were the fears uh, the revolutionary leadership had about uh, the activities that women might engage in, mm-hmm. not to listen to shopkeepers who might scare them about scarcity and uh, you know hardships to come and stuff like that, right. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I do. I argue that you know it had the effect of kind of Um, holding up women as predominantly consumers and reaching out to men predominantly as producers. So you do also see in this period that there was shortages that that affected the workplace, right, as as, um, replacement parts uh, were no longer coming from the United States and machinery started to break down. So then the government would uh, appeal to men mostly as workers and say, you know, conserve, you know, the resources in your workplace, conserve the materials in your workplace, try to, you know, be creative about finding replacement parts and stuff like this, right? So so these shortages did affect everyone, but I think that you see the leadership uh, addressing men and women differently and, and, you know, in that process, reinforcing these kind of um, more traditional gender roles.
1: Right. And so in this period, um, we you kind of see the counter-revolutionary activity begin to grow. And as you mentioned, one of the fears Of the revolutionary government is very much that women are susceptible in this way you mentioned shopkeepers kind of spreading rumors to them and so it seems that there is this fear of um, that women will be especially susceptible to counter revolutionary sentiment so I wonder why women are seen as particularly vulnerable to anti communist ideas and and what role the notion of family plays here.
0: Yeah, I don't think that those, those ideas were necessarily unique to Cuba. I think all throughout Latin America, the Latin American left has this kind of, um, this kind of boogeyman image in its mind of, in this period at least, of kind of the housewife who was, um, extremely under the sway of her priest, the local shopkeepers, the local gossips in the neighborhood, right? Um, and that you know her inability to transcend the private sphere and get out of the family uh, home, that these were things that were going to make her precip- uh, particularly susceptible to counter-revolutionary sentiment. And it was interesting to me because it also shed a, a whole other light on kind of the uh, revolutionary leadership's desire to form a mass organization for women in this period because you would see in, in memoirs and other... You you know, other, other kind of, um, sources that describe this period kind of among revolutionary for women, for example, you know, we had to, we had to mobilize the other women because otherwise they'd be mobilized by the counter-revolution, right? We had to make women join the FMC because otherwise they'd be reached by the, by the counter-revolution. And even, um, you know, the much lauded program by the revolutionary government to retrain a lot of domestics, right? There was a lot of domestic workers in Cuba in this period. Um, and the, Revolutionary government eventually set up schools to retrain them and try to give them um, work that the revolutionary leadership considered more dignified, right? Even even in that, you f- hear that discourse of we don't want these domestics, these maids to be kind of influenced by the women that they're working under, by the, you know, the senora of the house uh, polluting her with these counter-revolution ideas. Mm-hmm. So it was important to get women out of that. Out of that setting right for that reason, so um, so I tried to show that the government had you know, had many motives in uh, reaching out to women and mobilizing them for the revolutionary cause, but you know to some extent, there was some truth to the fact that women were more um, they more frequently um, were actively religious and at least in terms of church going right um, and so you even see some kind of CIA of the few CIA documents that I saw where they talked about, um, you know, the churches could be a good place to mobilize women against uh, against uh, Fidel Castro, against the revolution.
1: One of the things that you mention um, in this in this final chapter is is um, a rumor campaign called Patria Potestad. I wonder if you can tell our listeners what that rumor campaign was and sort of how it draws on notions of womanhood and family in, in this fear of counter revolution
0: yeah the Patria potestad rumor campaign it's it's interesting it was a um a rumor campaign that was intentionally started by opponents of of the uh, the revolutionary uh, uh leadership right opponents of the revolutionary regime and they circulated um, a fake law that they had drafted which said uh, that the revolution was going to basically take control of all of the children mm-hmm. and um um abrogate parents' uh, kind of custodial and legal rights to their own children. And this became, um, uh, it became like a huge scare campaign that had an enormous effect, especially among the urban middle class and the Catholic urban middle class, right? And it was what led, you know, one of the factors that led to um, a lot of families, especially middle urban class families, deciding to send their children unaccompanied uh, to the United States in what became known as Operation Pedro Pan, the Operation Peter Pan. Uh, the largest movement of unaccompanied uh, children historically that's taken place in the hemisphere, um, and yeah, so that it was it was interesting to me because it was it was something that um, intentionally addressed women as mothers. Again, in this period, right, motherhood and the notion of protecting your children was something that was mostly held up by the um, by the opposition, and um, you know would say something things to women like you know. Cuban woman, you you can't let, you know, you can't let the revolutionary leadership take over your child and turn him into a monster. Um, and you know, I show that it occurred in this context in which actually young people, adolescents, especially not so much children, perhaps, but adolescents especially were being called to participate politically and join things like the literacy campaign. And there were a lot of conflicts taking place within the realm of education as private schools were being uh, shut down or taken over. Right. And public, public initiatives expanded right to the countryside. Right. So there was a changing relationship, I think, between the state and young people that was going on in this period. Um, but this was, I think this rumor campaign was sort of a distortion of that. Mm-hmm. And and one, you know, it, it definitely appealed to kind of these Cold War images of um, children being sent to the Soviet Union for military training and for brainwashing, mm-hmm. right? Um, so these were things that um, mobilized, I think, a lot of um, uh, urban middle-class women, especially to, um, to oppose um, the revolution and, and to fear what was happening and mm-hmm. eventually a lot of them to flee into exile.
1: Right. So this story, which you talk about in the final chapter of the book, really, I think, brings up very uh, clearly one of these kind of uh, inherent contradictions in the Cuban Revolution's attempt to kind of remake individuals dedicated to a collective. And so I wonder um, how your analysis of the gendered nature of this transformation, this entire transformational decade, really helps us Understand the the project this project of the Cuban revolution in a new way and the way that it turns so often on these questions of of family and the family as a unit kind of within this new collective structure.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things I'll say is that I think that there's um, been a lot of, um, you know, scholarly studies and also more popular kind of criticism of the construction of a so-called new man after the revolution, mm-hmm. um, you know, modeled basically as, you know, essentially on the rebel army and um, asking young men to emulate the struggles that they had gone to and, um, you know, sacrifice themselves for the revolution in certain very masculine ways, right? And so one of the things I think using a gender lens on this period shows is just how much more conflicted a construction of a new Women was was necessarily going to be right um because i think you see the revolutionary government um I think having just a much more conflicted and um, ambiguous notion of what women's roles would be in the sense that on the one hand, they continued to uh, hold up the mother, right? Motherhood as kind of the, the sacred calling of a woman, even a revolutionary woman. But at the same time, um, there were a lot of ways in which they feared the power of the family, uh, saw the family as, um, as, you know, potentially a counterweight to uh, the revolutionary projects that they were trying to unfold um, and then and then also there was a certain praise for a certain kind of revolutionary family that they hoped to construct right so just a very a very kind of complicated and and um, um kind of multi mul- multiple um uh, multiple forms of discourse that you see around gender around womanhood, around femininity around motherhood in this period mm-hmm. that I think um is interesting to think about. Well, it's a fascinating book.
1: The book is um, Revolution Within the Revolution, Women and Gender Politics in Cuba, 1952 to 1962. And we've been speaking to its author, Michelle Chase. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you.